One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett, and I am your host. Welcome aboard. The guest today is Susan Wyndham Bannister. Susan was the founding CEO and president of the Massachusetts Life Sciences Center. This entity put together to handle Deval Patrick's $1 billion initiative to grow the life sciences in Massachusetts. Um, we definitely talked about that on this podcast, but this podcast is a little different from our usual, just a little. I'll, I'll tell you how. This is an accompaniment to a long-form feature we just published called Biotech's Pale Shadow. Uh, the article looks at the racial disparities in the U.S. biotech sector. We published it December 18th, and you can find it on the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. Susan was a source for me in that article, and after talking to her, I realized I obviously could not fit all the things we discussed in the article, and I wanted to see if I could um, have a conversation with and record it and release it as a podcast. So I I talked to Susan, I packed up gear, and I drove to her home. We sat in the front room with the windows open to the trees, and we talked about um, her life. She grew up in segregated St. Louis. She moved to Boston for her higher education. We talked about Boston, which has a long history of racial incidents, whether it has overcome that reputation enough to draw and retain minorities to the life sciences sector there. And we just talked about the state of race relations in the U.S. as it is. It's been a terrible year for race relations in the U.S., and she had some insightful things to say about that. So uh, I should also point out that this podcast is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University, and in particular, the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program there. If you've been wondering about these programs, um, I can tell you, since this podcast is about diversity, that theirs is pretty diverse. Uh, the student body for this program is 44% female. I think it's 12% African-American. It's 30% Asian. Uh, I think there are 21 international students in the current program. Um, if you'd like to find out more about this program and the ways in which it might help you in your career, go to enterprise.jhu.edu, and you'll find more information there. Okay, now back to the First Rounders podcast with Susan Wyndham Bannister. Listen up. So let's talk about how you, uh, how you grew up, your family, how you started getting interested in you weren't interested in the sciences at first. It was sociology, I think. So let's start there. Where, where were you born? Yes, so for my own career. So I was born in St. Louis, Missouri yeah. uh, in 1951. And that was an interesting time. I, St. Louis was still a segregated city. Yeah. Now, I will just say, and this is an editorial comment on my part, 
that in a lot of ways St. Louis is still, still a segregated yeah. city. We we we, are, we know what's happened with Ferguson. It's a, but there's really a divide in St. Louis, you know, uh, between the north side of the city and the south side of the city. And if you were an African American, you generally lived in the north side of the city. And um, socioeconomics didn't really matter very much. It was segregated, so everyone lived together. Now St. Louis also was an interesting city. Because as a segregated city, and as you often see in segregated cities, um, parallel institutions grew up. So there was a teacher's college in St. Louis. So we had, you know, a a very well-trained cadre of black teachers, Uh uh, which was beneficial to all of us who were in the public school system in St. Louis and in, in the black community. St. Louis had one of the few hospitals where physicians of my dad's generation and then going forward a bit, could go and train. There were really just four hospitals in the country, and Homer G. Phillips Hospital was one of them. So St. Louis also had a very large contingent of black physicians. Is your dad a physician? My dad was a physician, African-American physicians, um, um, uh, Afro-Caribbean physicians, um, physicians from Africa, coming to St. Louis to do their their training. Uh So I grew up in a community where we all lived together, uh, but we had a lot of role models of professional people. So we had people, of course, African-Americans who were doing uh, very blue-collar and and, and mundane jobs uh, uh, and families who were not at all well-off. But then you also had families who had been able, fortunately, um, to be successful professionally. Uh, and my family, fortunately, was one of those. Um, my, my mother and father had both gone to historically black colleges, uh, to Talladega, mm-hmm. which is a small college in, in Alabama. Uh, that's where they met. That's where they met many of their friends who ultimately ended up in St. Louis. So, you know, we had these long um, family associations with friendships that really went back to, to college. But as people were pursuing different career pathways for various and sundry reasons, either because they were interested in, in, in education, they were interested in medicine, they would find themselves in St. Louis. Uh, so, but your, your mother, so they met in college. What did your mother do? My mother, um, because she was a very good student, uh, was encouraged by her guidance counselors at Talladega to apply to Smith College School of Social Work. Uh-huh. So my mother, who's now 94, so you can do the math and sort of go back and figure out when that was, went to Smith College School of Social Work and has a master's in social work. And this was really my mom's exposure to these Ivy League and Seven Sisters schools. Uh, and, and she decided then she wanted her kids to be able to have access to the quality of education that she was afforded, that, that she had been able to have in her graduate program because she found herself coming from Talladega yeah. to, to Smith College. So do, how, how important do you think that that was to you growing up, to have parents who had been to college, who, you know, your, your father being a physician, your mother who had a master's degree, um, in shaping your own path? I mean, so that, and I don't necessarily mean mentorship, but maybe a model. It was, it was critical for two reasons. We lived in the black community, uh-huh. and I mean that in every sense of the word. Um, so my father had an inner city medical practice. My father was a general surgeon. He would always say to us he had consciously decided not to go into a specialty because the needs in the black community were very broad. And so while he focused a lot on um, sort of us, uh, uh 
various types of um, gastric surgeries uh-huh. and you know sort of um, breast removal things like that. But he was a general surgeon. Um, he and a number of physicians had a medical building, sort of right in the center of St. Louis, right in the heart of the black community, um, that was entirely black physicians. So until I came to Boston to go to college, I had never gone to see a white physician. I had once for an allergist. Mm -hmm. But you think of all the medical needs you have, you know, including dentistry, your eyes, you know, uh, your pediatrician, your obstetrician, um, I had a lot of allergies, so ENT. These were all African-American physicians. So one, by living in the black community, um, and my father having an inner city practice, um, we were very aware of the challenges as black people, right? We would go to restaurants sometimes, and I remember going to Howard Johnson's as a kid, and I plop down, I'm ready for pancakes, and the waitress comes up and says, I'm sorry, we will not serve you here. And it was, at that time, it was very hard for me to understand, you know. I'm trying to, so this is in the 50s. This is in the 50s. Why, Daddy, why can't I, why can't I have my pancakes? He said, well, we'll we'll go elsewhere. So, you know, it was, we we grew up in an area, in a a time when people entertained primarily in the homes. I got to press you on that, No, that's fine. So this was still Jim Crow laws were in effect, right? This is the 50s. Yes, absolutely. um, was that universal across Howard Johnson's, or that specific Howard Johnson had? You know, like I don't. I, that's a good question. I really don't know. I, I honestly don't know. The so you just went someplace else, and, and so yeah. I don't want to disparage all Howard yeah. Johnson's <laughs> that exist anymore. But we, yeah, we just went, and we would primarily then go either to those few restaurants that would serve African Americans, because the train station was a place that you could go and yeah. eat, or we would, you know, we would just patronize black establishments, right. yeah. and black yeah. restaurants. So one is, one was we grew up very grounded in who we were as black people, right? Our teachers, our church, you know, our social life revolved around the black community. But at the same time, we had great aspirations for what we could be. And I'm not saying that those are mutually exclusive, but uh-huh. when I look today at uh, how the, the, the black community is dispersed, and unfortunately, you do tend to have some bifurcation uh, where there are inner city communities and black professionals who uh, want to take advantage of good schools, yeah. you know, want to live in communities that they feel are safer, yeah. Yeah. don't live in the black community, the quote unquote, you know, what is considered to be the inner city, the core black community. That was not the case for me. And so... We grew up very, very grounded in who we were culturally, psychologically, but we also looked and saw role models for anything that we might aspire to be. Attorneys, business people, um, um, people who own businesses, physicians, teachers, whatever we wanted to be. I and I think that was here. really, really important. So you're, so you're saying, so if, if that has gone away, or I don't know if that's actually changed over time, but if now, as you said, the population is more bifurcated in that way, then children are not getting those role models. Exactly in, right. In the inner city. Exactly right. Because yeah. okay. I'll give you an example. When I was in high school, um, so my father was the first black physician to integrate the staffs of many of the white hospitals in St. Louis. Um and so when I was going into my junior year of high school, um, my uh, father 
and mother had wanted, you know, to look for, you know, another place for, for us to live. Uh-huh. We, you know, they wanted to just have a, a, a you know, expanding family. They wanted uh, to move. And, of course, we were never shown houses that were in many communities, white yeah. in white neighborhoods. We were continually shown houses in, in our neighborhood, our community. Uh, but a Quaker physician who was on the staff with my father was leaving St. Louis and offered to sell their home directly to my parents. So at that time, we moved from St. Louis proper to a community that's called University City. And you know, it's like passing um, here in Boston, say, you know, going from the Boston into Newton or you yeah. know, any of the immediately adjacent yeah. cities yeah. and towns. You wouldn't know that you had gone into a different city or town, but you had. Um, this was at that time primarily Jewish community, but excellent school system, you know, excellent public services. So from the time that I was a junior in high school, I went to a predominantly white school. Um, so and, can, I, can and, I ask you about that? Yeah, I mean, please. So this, this was a huge change then It was you. a big change. How it did, was a big how change. Did you, what did you think about it? How did you feel about it? Well, it was very interesting. Um, I, I, was, you know, I was comfortable integrating myself into that situation. You know, because my father was a, a professional, because my parents were very civically involved in, in the city of St. Louis, my father was on the staff of you know, many hospitals, uh, were the predominant, the most of the staff, uh, you know, were were white. white yeah. We had certainly had a lot of exposure, you know, uh, to Caucasians and Caucasians who were very interested in, in, in getting rid of some of these challenges in St. Louis. So it wasn't as if I had never had exposure. So I was, you know, I was perfectly comfortable, but I think I was comfortable because I was really comfortable with, with who yourself. I was, um, and my social life was still very grounded in the black community. So, you know, I would go to school. I had friends at school. I would go to their homes. My Jewish friends would take me with them to to temple on Fridays. Um, But I also, you know, had my my friends, my my music, my culture, my my slang, um, my way of dressing, etc. So, you know, for me, it was actually not very uncomfortable. But I bring that up really to make the point that if that's the situation in which I had grown up, I had grown up in a community other than right on the north side, the north central side of St. Louis. It would have been very different. My, my grounding, you know, my my uh, strong feelings for the, the community, my ability to see all these role models would have been very would have been very very different. Yeah, very different. So my mother, you know, who had gone to Smith College for graduate school, really wanted my brother and me to go to one of these schools. Not just because of the quality of the education, but the exposure and the access. The things that she had learned um, being at this college yeah. that, that went way beyond, you know, just academics. So we grew up with a very, very strong sense of um, grounding in um, and loyalty to the black community, but also of very, very high expectations by my parents who knew and expected that we would be educated, you know, that we would pursue um, professional careers, but always with an eye towards how we did that in a responsible way as African Americans, and finding ways to stay very strongly connected to our communities. I mean, my my parents would ask us all the time, um, as adults, 
what are you doing? What are you doing to give back to the community? What kind of linkages are you maintaining to the community? Are you a big brother or a big sister? You know, I mean, are you going, are, are you visiting the schools? Are, you know, I mean, it's, it's what are you doing um, so that what you've achieved is a give back, so that you're a role model. It's, so it's not, it's not just that you go off and do well, but you go off and do well and, and do good. And, yeah, and do good. Yeah, hand something along. Right, okay. Absolutely. And, okay. You, and you never lose that connection back. So maybe I'll talk a little bit then about Wesley. pursuing my own yeah. career path. So I applied to Seven Sisters schools, right? Uh, I had heard about them. I was intrigued by them. My mother and I came up and did a tour, which is, was quite hilarious. You know, the two of us driving all around Massachusetts with rotaries and, you know, I mean, things that we didn't have didn't in St. Louis. Yeah. And so my mother would say, goodness, there are so many Rotarians here in <laughs> Massachusetts because we would see a sign, rotary, rotary. Um, and you know, my poor mother said she would have nightmares. You know, driving in Boston is a sport yeah. as well as, as anything else. And um, I'm a teenager. I'm looking around. I'm not being very much help. And so when she went back, she literally was traumatized from trying to find her way around Boston. But no, I was I was all on board with you know going to um, uh, uh, a seven sister school. And I had gone always to public schools in uh-huh. St. Louis. So I went to schools first. These this school, public school system of uh, St. Louis, and I then went to. Um, high school. I should say really quickly, and I, I, this is an important detail I should mention. When I was in the fifth grade, I went into a magnet program in St. Louis. So I, I guess they call them, you know, TAG, Talented and Gifted. We always hate all of these acronyms because they sound very elitist. Yeah. But for kids who are testing at a very high level, most school systems have some kind of program to, to put those kids into an, ex, an accelerated yeah. path. Challenge them, yeah. And so what St. Louis did was kind of an experiment. They, they took the kids that were really testing very highly on these standardized tests, and rather than bus us, you know, into an all-white school, and we were just, you know, interleafed into the classrooms, they created a cohort of white kids and black kids who were going to go to school together. We happened to go to a predominantly white school. Mm -hmm. We were a class. We were a group unto ourselves within the school, and we matriculated together. So starting... evenly? Half black, half white? pretty half black, half white. So starting in the sixth grade, I came from my public, all-black school, and I went into a public program, um which was an experiment to see what would happen if we put these bright kids together and we keep them together um, all the way through the rest of their grade school and middle school experiences. And that's what they did. What did happen? It was great. Um, We got to know each other. We would visit one another's homes. we had a great reunion some years ago when we got on the steps of the school and we all stood in exactly the same spots. Um, everyone has done very well. But I think that was really our first exposure because you were asking about what it was like to yeah. integrate. And I really should have said that I had gotten exposure to being in an integrated classroom situation early on. The hardest thing for us was that the neighborhood 
was not welcoming to us. And so when we, the black kids, arrived at the school, and we often came on just the public transportation, there was a Dairy Queen, and it was big, someone had spray painted, niggers go home. So this was really my first experience, was sort of coming out of my comfort zone, my community, and really going into an area where I was just absolutely not welcome. I was wondering, you were saying that, you know, it went, went really well, and I was like, where does the ugliness show up in here? This is, is where the yeah. ugliness first showed up. Yeah. When I went to high school, it, it, was, it was really not an issue. Again, this was a predominantly Jewish community, a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, and I think they were generally happy to have, you know, diverse kids coming into the school. I mean, Jews are familiar with oppression, you know. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so, um, really, I experienced that for the first time when I was in grade school. So when, when you see this on the Dairy Queen, are you thinking, uh, what, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this? I'm or, scared. Yeah, are yeah. they going to come into the school? Or we, were, yeah, I mean? we, yeah, we were scared. Yeah. And, you know, we were scared to go outside of school, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, but eventually, I think the neighborhood got over it and just said, all right, these kids are here. Um, and the, we, we were forming these great friendships with the, the kids students, yeah. in, in, in our class. So we were a cohort, you know, and, and we matriculated together and then went to a, a high school together. But then ultimately, you know, I, my family moved. So yeah. I didn't finish with, yeah. with all of these, these kids. Um, but you know we we we've kept in touch in, in various ways and it was it was really very transformative and I think it was a great experiment because it said yes kids can learn together and there's real value in bringing them together for sure this, yeah. it sort of really breaks down a lot of that cognitive dissonance yeah um, so by the time I was ready to go to college I was comfortable with the notion of going into an integrated school I knew who I was I knew how to I was bilingual, if you will, and I was somewhat bicultural. Yeah. Uh, so I was comfortable in, in that environment. So my brother, by the way, who was tracking along behind me, younger, ultimately younger. went to went to Williams. He's two years younger than I am. So we both came, you know, to very excellent schools yeah. here in, in New England. Um, and my brother is a physician as well, who lives in Atlanta and is a specialist in tropical infectious disease. So he spends most of his time when he's not at the Carter Center, which is where he works. I know for, where that is. For I, President, that's in Atlanta. Yeah. Work for President Carter. Yeah. He's in Africa. He's in India. He's in Latin America. He's in Central America. So again, sort of very focused on diseases that, that affect populations of color. But my own career, so I, I come to Wellesley. I'm one of eight black women in my class, 32 black women on the campus. Um, How big overall is the school? Wellesley at that time had uh, 1,200 students. Okay, so very, very small. So there small. were yeah. about three, 12 to 16, three to 400 students in a class. Uh, and there were just a few of us in every class. I was used to being in that situation. Uh, so, you know, I sort of knew how to navigate that. And, and at that time, all of the black women who were there were coming from very good schools, you middle or even upper middle class backgrounds, uh, used to being in a situation where there was diversity and, and they represented the diversity. Yeah. So um, it it was a it was a comfortable situation. All, I mean in the sense that we all knew how to 
how to be in that environment. But a lot of very interesting things that we did notice, so it wasn't my case, but a number of the black students would get roomed together. So how interesting is that? That, you know, if there are three to 400 women in your class and somehow the black students are, together. are rooming together let's, or let's the black students are in only certain dorms uh, and not other dorms. So certainly I've, uh, things that we noticed. I've, I've wondered about that because when, <clears throat> you know, when, you're, when schools are putting you, they're finding your freshman roommate and they're putting you together. And I think they put, I, I was put with some, I, I grew up in New England, right? And I was, I went to school in North Carolina and they mm. put me with a, a boy from Georgia. Mm. I'd played a lot of high school sports and so had he. And I think they're sort of thinking, well, you know, they're different, but they might have something in common. And mostly we got along. So I wonder if schools are thinking, well, if we put the black kids together, they'll have an easier time of it. Right well, on. you know, it, it, it's hard. I think we, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think we really understood from the administration's point of view what they were trying to do but it was very it seemed weird weird to us now my roommate who's roommate who's remained a very dear friend of mine um, is Jewish uh, and we chose to room together all four years I mean we we really bonded Um, her dad is a physician my dad is a physician uh, but we just got along really really well but um, we all were very aware of the fact that there were no black faculty, there were no black deans. We were expected to come in and um, acclimate to Wellesley College. Uh, Again, many of us had come up in backgrounds where um, going to, to afternoon tea, you know, wouldn't have felt like a really strange, crazy thing to us. Um having to wear a skirt to dinner, you know. Um, But it was certainly, we were very aware of the fact that that we were not reflected at Wellesley College. So in in the spirit of the 60s, because this is 1968 when I came to college, um, we began to to protest and to do sit-ins and to go on hunger strikes, which I have to tell you, you know, Wellesley College is quite different than Kent State. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is where we're on a hunger strike and the administration is busily trying to send box lunches, you know, into the area where we were supposedly not not eating. Were you not eating? We were not eating. How long did you go on your hunger strike? Oh, this is, you know, I don't know, maybe a couple of days. That's a f- I mean, yes, that isn't like you're in prison, but, but uh, that's a fair amount of time to go with that. It's eating. a fair amount of time. But I, I, my point is our lives were never in danger. Right, Our right, right, comfort right. Was, was never... A problem, but we were very determined that we wanted to make these changes. And I have to all of us who were part of that endeavor, uh, you're creating the first African American student organization, which was called Ethos, uh, and the women who were most instrumental, so the upperclassmen who really were instrumental in forming that, you know, have been honored. And but all of us who were there at that time, they call us the 32. And there's this great urban legend that has grown up about these tremendous hardships that we suffered to really open Wellesley up. Now, you know, yeah, we have to laugh because I mean, here we are in Wellesley, Massachusetts, on this beautiful campus. Yeah. There, you know, just there's hardship and there's hardship. hardship right. And uh, for us, it was more determination and just pushing and pushing and pushing. But, you know, we were never in physical, you know, danger. Um, and so the next year, the class of 1969 had about 50 or 60 black women and much more diverse 
in terms of their backgrounds. And this is, this is where I could see the difference in sort of my preparation to come and be in an integrated situation, very firmly grounded in my black culture and, and, and who I am as a black person, but having had enough exposure yeah. to being someone who comes and integrates a situation so that I could navigate my way. It was really uncomfortable, very difficult, uh, unpleasant for a lot of the, of the sisters who came in in subsequent classes. Right. Because it was, they, there just wasn't enough, there weren't enough touch points for them. And many of the students were very unhappy, um, uh, really felt very acutely uh, what was not there, um, how they were treated, not in a mean or conscious way, but just, you know, just lack they of awareness. They felt disregarded, yeah. They just felt yeah. dis- disregarded, disrespected. And so many of the women who were at Wellesley at that time have not stayed very connected to the college. Others of us have stayed very connected, understand the importance of our staying connected. Um, I was president of my class when I was there. I have been president since I left the college of my of the class of 72. What I've noticed that gives me great joy is that the women who have come in in subsequent years, so let's say starting maybe in the, in the, in the 90s uh-huh. and the class of 2000 going forward, the black women are very engaged with the college. Their experience was much better. And so their feeling about the college and being in an all-woman's environment is actually very positive. And that makes me very happy because I think that it's very important for the black alum to stay really engaged. So while I was at Wellesley, I came to Wellesley bound and determined to be an English major. Um, I wanted to be a journalist. So uh, I... I um, was an English major for two years and well, we decided I wanted to be an English major. Yeah. My second year, I took a class in anthropology. Fascinated. Fell in love with this notion of the study of groups and group behavior. So I ultimately measured, uh, majored in sociology. Uh-huh. But my interest in group behavior led to an interest in market behavior. And that that is really very much at the core of of my professional life going forward. How do markets behave? How do you define markets? How do you access markets? Which markets get what? Um, which mar- why are some markets disadvantaged? And you know, how do we address uh, what causes them to be disadvantaged? And how do you make the business case for being more inclusive and more diverse? So this is, this is sort of the theme of of, of, of my professional life. Um, you know, when I finished, it was 1972. Uh-huh. And the thought of going to business school was just kind of abhorrent to me. You know, at that time, business, this is the enemy, it's not a good thing. Um, I worked in an inner city um, multi-service center when I left Wellesley College. Uh, and I had, it was, uh, for Model Cities was a government program that was created to uh, economically empower inner city communities I see. Uh, by, by creating these multi-service centers which were addressing many of the needs of the community but staffing many of the uh, positions with people from the community. So these were residents really addressing through their own work the needs of their communities. And you know, because I had a bachelor's degree from a very good college, um, I was put in a supervisory role. Um, and I 
really sort of looked at the impact that policy has and uh, when policy is really executed. So I decided that I was going to get a degree in, in policy, uh, and I went to a doctoral program. I went to Brandeis, mm -hmm. to the Heller School. I didn't get a master's degree. At that time, the Heller School didn't have a master's program, but it would um, bring in, it would accept a certain number of students whose work experience um, was strong and who seemed to have a very clear idea of what they wanted to do and what they wanted to get from the program. So I was one of those lucky you know, few students who was accepted yeah. without uh, a master's. I went on to get a PhD. I wrote a very radical, a Marxist dissertation, which was really an analysis of health care uh -huh. and national health insurance. And it was called National Health Insurance as an Issue in Political Economy. You could take my dissertation and dust it off, and it would be very relevant today, today yeah, I bet. which is a very sad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, as they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, but I left uh, Brandeis and went directly to a company called Apt Associates, which is a big you know, international uh, public policy think tank. I was at Apt Associates for about five or six years when I realized that public policy was still a step too far removed from what really interested me. But what I did do was to, was to do a year as a fellow at the Kennedy School. Um, so and just really kind of thinking and focusing on what was of interest to me. So when I left, I set up, I, I just was a single shingle consultant. And I was working with a lot of different kinds of businesses, um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, uh -huh. and that were giving a lot of thought at that time to um, uh, reimbursement issues, you know, the, their, their products, how they were working with different communities and different populations. And so it was just really great immersion. And how strategy needs to be done in the context of the policy environment. So I really was able to kind of transform myself from someone who was really deeply knowledgeable about health policy and reimbursement to someone who really understood how you create strategy business strategy within that context. Um, I was invited to come back to Apt Associates. Uh, this would have been now in the, we're probably in the 90s uh -huh. at this point, because the board had charged the management team to start a commercial business. So, you know, government contract research is extremely interesting. But, you know, government work is, is cost reimbursement plus fixed fee. And so the company was really interested in increasing its margins and uh -huh. thought that a good way to do that would be to see if it could make a foray into the commercial sector. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So as someone who had done that for myself, had kind of reinvented myself, they asked if I would come back and be part of a team that would create that division. And that was of interest to me. You know, I, I like being part of a team. It was an interesting challenge. I love to start new things. I, I love to be at an inflection point. So I did that. Um, and really, for many years, I was at Apt Associates, sort of building this business within Apt Associates and then ultimately being part of the team that took that business out of Apt. We spun it out of Apt as its own company. So now we're up to, you know, mid-2000s. We've grown this company to about 100 people. We have a blue chip list of clients, you know, big pharma companies. I see. This um, is making sense to me now. Yeah. So, um, uh, we decided that we were going to sell our company because we had about 100 people, but we were a boutique company and we're competing with big you know, companies like uh, Bain and McKinsey yeah. and the Boston Consulting Group. Um, and so while we're preparing our company for sale, we're doing our due diligence with various partners, I get a call from an executive recruiter. Hello, there's a new initiative that Governor Deval Patrick, who is still fairly new in yeah. office, is going to launch. And the goal is to really build a stronger commercial life sciences uh, presence here in Massachusetts. Would you be interested in interviewing, you know, to be the, the founding CEO? I'll be honest, my initial reaction was, no way. Um, state government, you know, I, I'm coming from the world of, not just of business, but innovation, yeah. right? Th things moving quickly, uh, really thinking uh, for the long term, lots of strategy. You know, when I think of, of state government, you know, I think of um, a lot of bureaucracy. Slower. Things are yeah. moving very slowly, lots of red tape. But did they tell you that it was, there's a billion dollars tied to it? They did. They did. But I assumed that all that was spoken for. And this is simply an organization that would just hand out money yeah. that's already been committed. Yeah. We, know, we know how the legislative process works, yes. right? Yeah. So, um, of course, I went to interview. You should always do that. And it was a great interview. There was a search committee, and it was a very interesting search committee. Um, you had a guy named Mark Beer who has you know, been doing some very, very interesting and cutting-edge work in sort of cell therapies. Uh, Josh Boger, who was the founder yeah. of Vertex. Vertex. I mean, the, the composition of the search committee was a group of really interesting, talented people in the innovation space and doing cutting-edge work. So I imme it immediately impacted my thinking about this. And as we talked about this opportunity what was there, what was not there, more importantly, I actually got very interested because there was a lot of room for strategy. 
all the funds were not committed by any any stretch. And really the goal of the position was to figure out what should the strategy be? What could and should the state do? Well, of course, that's like dangling candy yeah, yeah. in front of a baby when you say that to a consultant. Yeah. So as someone on the committee said to me, before we interviewed you, it would have never occurred to us to think about someone from the consulting world for this job. But what do consultants do? You give them a vision or a goal or a problem, and they figure out how to solve it. So I went from being a little skeptical to being highly enthusiastic and then tremendously honored to be offered. So did you, did you meet Deval Patrick during this? Of course I did, Had yes. you met him before? I had met him before. Oh, you had? I had okay. met him before. Uh, but, it was, but it was really as the process was wending its way through. Naturally, I was going to be in charge of one of his signature initiatives, so it was important that, that we meet. Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about how diversity played into the work that I that I did, because you may say, what does this have to do with diversity and inclusion? Um, one of the things that, that I certainly knew from having worked for industry was this tremendous need for talent and significant talent, but not just talent in the laboratory, you know, business talent, uh, talent in tech, talent in marketing and sales. Um, innovation companies are very high demanders of talent. New talent, people. yeah. New talent. And what I knew as a person of color, and someone who pays attention to what's happening in communities of color, is that the sociodemographics of the U.S. are changing. Uh, so 50% of the workforce is now female, and that slowed down, meaning that for a number of years, we were all, we as women were, were entering the workforce, and the number was going up, but we are here. We are firmly 50% yeah. of the workforce, so this is not about more women coming in. This is about we need to employ the women who are in the workforce, but the growth rate that's occurring in the population is really uh, among African Americans. I think it's 2x growth to the Caucasian population. You mean population, yeah. Growth. Yeah. Um, Latinos. Latinos and Hispanic Americans, 3x. Yep. And, and Asian Americans, 4x. Yep. So, where are companies going to find their talent in the future? They're going to have to look to a, a more diverse labor pool. And I knew that many companies didn't have great connections, didn't have good role models didn't have good linkages into those communities. And what I also knew as a kid of color who grew up hearing all of those areas of skepticism, but at the same time having role models that said to me that these are great careers, uh, people of color can do these things, should do these things, I knew that there was a big disconnect that was going to have to be addressed. So among Many things that we did at the Life Sciences Center, which was to support entrepreneurs, infrastructure, you know, just lots of grants for research, was a very intentional focus on how do we feed the pipeline of women and people of color who are coming into the labor pool that's available to STEM companies. So we began to look at how we could give grants First of all, to community-based programs that start with kindergartners. 
you know, and, and things like, you know, the Girl Scouts and Science Club for Girls and something called Girls Up and the Urban League has some really interesting programs and an organization here in Boston called Freedom House in Roxbury, um, where kids of color are encouraged to think about STEM. Uh, and then what about the schools, especially the schools in our uh, as we call them in Massachusetts, gateway communities, uh -huh. which are our lower-income communities. How could the Life Sciences Center, on behalf of the state, put money into those schools to really enable them to teach STEM technically well and to make STEM fun and interesting? So what, what equipment, what supplies? Yeah, that's the thing, right? If, if you are a lower-funded school, you cannot teach science well. It's hard, yeah. you know. You, the quality of your labs. Do you have laptops for the kids? Do you have pipettes? Um, can you follow a curriculum that makes STEM fun? Because you've got the labs, you've got the 3D printers, you've got um, uh, all the equipment, and you've got the places, um, the maker spaces, you know, the things where kids can really in indulge um, in, in this interest. We gave money to the Museum of, of Science and to the Children's Museum, which is where a lot of kids get their first exposure. Yeah. Um, we supported programs that support women that are in the profession. Um, the Partnership, which supports people of color uh, that are uh, in the profession and also moving in, into leadership tracks. We created an internship program um, where kids from community colleges, which are disproportionately immigrants and, and people of color, uh -huh. um, uh, or single parents, or you know, just a, a whole group of talented people, um, so that they would have not only, and again, we gave money to schools for their infrastructure, but also career pathways. So we had, we had the, the center had funded by the time I left 3,000 internships from four-year colleges, from community colleges, um, and the center would, you could get two interns if you selected interns from a four-year school. You get two more if they were from a community college. Yeah. So building those linkages, really creating awareness of the talent, but also putting the talent and the Into the network, right, together. yeah. Exactly, yeah. creating the, the, the pathway. This this is a great lead into this question, because we talked a little bit before about this on the phone, but um, the Cambridge area, Boston, is the sector here is um, probably the most energetic, I think, in the country. In the, the world. In, in the world. world, yeah. We yeah, are now. For we sure. Have, we, we have become what we wanted to be. Which right. Is it used the to be the Bay Area capital I think. of the world. Exactly. And it right. seems a little bit like Cambridge is overcoming. We have. Now, if it wants to continue on that pace, yes. Right? You and I have talked about this before. Boston had a horrific racist reputation. Absolutely. Now, things have changed. But it, it's not clear that they have changed enough for them to continue to draw the talent. Yes. Are you worried about that? I am worried about that. And again, as I uh, walk the talk, if you will, um, I speak a lot on the topic of inclusion and diversity. Um, and I am fortunate enough to still be very engaged with um, our industry uh, cluster here in the greater Boston area. And one of my really important messages to them uh, so first of all, the public sector. I give our mayor a tremendous kudos for working very hard on this issue. Uh, we're turning a corner. Boston is certainly different than it used to be, but we have work to do. Yeah. When baseball players come and go to Fenway Park and 
people heckle them and call them names. And I have sat in Fenway Park and heard this. And for many years, I wouldn't go to Fenway Park because of that. You, you were saying they were calling Jim Rice. Jim Rice. Yeah, he was an all-star yeah. left fielder. Nigga, monkey. Yeah. And oh this is exactly what, I think it was one of the Orioles, was Baltimore Orioles was playing this out, year. out in, in the outfield and was being called exactly the same thing. So there is still, you know, there's education, there's effort that we need. You know, one of the unique things about Boston, which is a strength in some regards, but is a challenge, is Boston is a very ethnic city. People really embrace, more so than in most cities I know, maybe uh, um, Pittsburgh is, is another example, I think maybe Chicago, but people's ethnic backgrounds matter to them tremendously. I am Irish. I am... Italian. Yeah. I am, I can rattle it. I'm 50% French and 30% English and 10% Irish. And there's huge tribalism that exists here in the city. And people tend to live in areas, in areas. Where, where their tribe is. I mean, you know, I, I, there are people who live in the same neighborhood that they were raised in maybe in the same house that they were raised in. They just take the house from their yeah, parents. The parents. So part of it is that is that tribalism, you know, as you begin to... So it it's, extends even beyond race. It extends to um, if I'm Italian, if I'm Irish, if, you know. So we, you know, we have a lot of tensions that are really based on... I'll, I'll call it tribalism. They're fighting for power in the city. They're fighting for turf. They're, they're fighting for who controls the business community, who controls the political community, and the pendulum swings back, back and, and forth. forth and back and forth. And so race just becomes part of that whole equation. That said, I give our current mayor a lot of kudos. I think he gets it. I truly think he understands that this is an issue, and I think he's very committed to, to working on it. And I think he has, he has placed within his cabinet at very high levels um, African-Americans and other diverse, you know, Hispanic and yeah. Latinos. I think our school commissioner, who's Asian-American, I think he's really trying to walk that talk. Um, but Boston is a tough town and it is a very, like, ethnically, a very inbred kind of a town. Now, as far as the business community is concerned, you know, what does that mean and how, how does that hurt us? I say to our life sciences community all the time, we are disproportionately represented here as an industry group. So what are we doing to make Boston more inclusive and more welcoming so that people want to come here? So that if you as a company invest very heavily in recruiting um, uh a very senior scientist who is black or is Latino or is an Asian American, the last thing you want is for them to come and say, I hate living here. I don't want to live there. It yeah. is a horrible experience. My children are having horrible experiences. My wife is, ha I'm out of here. Um, so we have to think about what we are doing as an industry group to make Boston welcoming. I'm ask you, I have two things I want to ask yeah. you. And the first one is sort of this, um, it's something I noticed while I was interviewing for this article, right? So I talked to, you know, as many minorities as I could who were in the biotech sector. 
And enough people told me as I interviewed them that they were biracial mm. or, as you mentioned, lighter skinned or that they had been able to pass or they didn't have particularly features that looked Asian or Native American or whatever, mm-hmm. that it began to add up in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I thought, are these people getting ahead because, number one, they're wildly talented, but also because what they're presenting is allowing the white people to sort of believe the intelligence that's in front of them. Sure. I, listen, you think that's it? I, so I am as, you know, people can't see me, of course, but I'm a very light-skinned yeah. African-American. I am not mixed race. I, both of my parents are African-American. Um, but I've very often asked myself when, in my consulting days when I knew that many of my clients didn't know if I was black or, in fact, they would say, you know, what are you? Are you Jewish? Are you Italian? Are you Israeli? Yeah. Are you Egyptian? Um, and I would always ask myself, and I would tell them, but then I would always wonder, so how are they feeling about an African-American woman giving them advice about their Fortune 500 company? company? Yeah. It makes me wonder. So I would have to say that there is a measure of cognitive dissonance, and this is what I was just talking about. How comfortable am I looking at someone who looks different from me and believing that they are my equal, my equal, or better than I am? They are smart, they are qualified, they're going to make a contribution, I need to listen to them, They, they may know more than I know about certain topics. That's an issue, and, and psychologists have studied this. You know, it's consonance, it's dissonance. Um, you know, they say that babies, how racism starts, unless your parents really work with you on this, is you're a baby. There's a certain face that you see every day, and that person becomes identified with security, love, dependability. And so people who look different than that... So, you know, yeah. it's a little like, well... Like, what is that? What is that? Yeah. Are they good people? Yeah. Should I be... So if your, your parents have to, you know, expose you, make sure you know. But of course, you, you can love those people too. You get those... I think it's the same point. And I think it's also why kids of color, it, it, it works both ways. If I look at a museum and I don't see myself there, I'm not sure if I belong there. If I look at a company and I don't see people who look like me, maybe the company's not for you. Maybe yeah. that's just not a place I, I want to be. And, and even if I'm not afraid to go in there, I just may think this is not going to be very fun. But this is so, and I mean, I'm not going to enjoy this, so I'm not even going to bother to go in there. But then pity the poor uh, straight A student, you know, whatever, who's dark skinned who cannot, he doesn't get the job because for some reason they just don't. I mean, I. How do you overcome that? I don't know how that is. You know what? It's a, it's a number of things. So first of all, you know, you, you, you've, I'm sure, read about the studies where you take a person of color or you take a woman and you put a name you, and you, you send in the same resume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. first it's Sue's resume and then it's Sam's resume. And people will consistently think that Sam's resume is better than Sue's, even though it is essentially the same. Yeah. So... I mean, it starts with unconscious bias. So it takes education. It takes having executives who are willing to be more inclusive in their workforce so that then uh, there are people who are brown-skinned sitting there. And so 
when you talk to somebody who's brown skin, it's like, yeah, whatever. You know, my boss is brown skin yeah. or my colleague is brown skin. It does it doesn't register as an issue. I have uh, one question, just one final question. Charlottesville. Yes. What do you think's happening to this country? Ooh. So what I think is happening in this country right now is really scary on a lot of levels. And so maybe I'll try and parse it a little bit and talk about these different levels. So let me start, first of all, with my perspective of what's happening to many white Americans. Because I really want to share that, that I get it. I, I understand the group of people that Trump tapped into. Because if we look at the numbers in the aggregate, things are looking better. They are. You know, job rates going up, stock market is rocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many, many people in this country, many, many Caucasian people who are being left behind. They're, they've seen wage stagnation. They've lost their jobs. See, I'm from the Rust Belt, right? So I grew up in a community you know, in the Missouri, the Wisconsin, the Ohio's that have really been hit hard by the losses of manufacturing jobs. Those were big jobs in, in, in my city of, of St. Louis and hard to educate their, their kids, hard for their kids to go to college and, and the social safety net programs, the opportunities that we're trying to create are not targeted at them. And so I understand, you know, that there's a level of frustration, there's a level of resentment, um, and there's a, a sense that when I look around, I see help being given to lots of other people who don't look like me. Like immigrants or refugees. Immigrants yeah. or people of yeah. color. Yeah. So I go, one of the most enlightening books I've read recently is Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Because I lived, again, in a part of the country where there's been a huge in-migration of hillbillies coming from Appalachia. So going to um, the store, and here's somebody standing in the line with food stamps and a cell phone, and I'm not on, I don't get food stamps, and I can't afford to buy a, a cell phone. And I look at this and I think, this isn't fair, that this isn't right. And I agree, it's not fair, it's not right. Um, what Trump has been able to do is to simplify the reasons, the explanation for that to one of the problem is the other. Yeah. It's all these people who don't look like you, these black people. And not only that, they're taking it from you. These immigrants, they're taking it from you. And your hard-earned taxes are going into this money that isn't helping you. It's helping them, the others. They're taking it from you. And, that's, and, and that is a very, unfortunately, very easy argument to wrap your head around and say, yeah, 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 that's the problem. And it's been used throughout history. They are the, yeah. was used in Nazi Germany. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's being used very aggressive, aggressively right now in Scandinavia. So I get what Trump has tapped into. Now, what's really frightening about that is the fact that he, we live in an age now of sound bites and social media, and just give me the simplest explanation, just cut to the chase. Can you leave out all that detail, and can you just get to something that's a little bite-sized morsel, morsel the tweet? 
So he has boiled down what is a very complex problem to a problem that is not an accurate, the impact is accurate. The cause, the cause is not accurate. Or his explanation is not accurate. It's not yeah. accurate. Yeah. And he has, so he's really created this huge wedge. And he's given a voice to a lot of very um, aggressive um, sentiments that have all have been below the surface. Let's, let's be honest. But when it's not acceptable... It's not fashionable. Kind of forces people to tamp it down and to maybe listen a bit more and to be maybe a bit more accepting. But now it's it's licensed, and 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 I notice that in Trump's own vocabulary, he's getting very comfortable throwing out, you know, "What the hell? Get those son of a bitches!" I mean, you know, it you off know, the field. It yeah. is um, the, the 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 language the way that we talk to one another. So my worry is this. It has become very acceptable to, to go for these very ultra-conservative groups to come out and not only spew their venom verbally, but to act on that. You know, Trump's little... Yeah, well, if you, you have, if you happen to bump the guy's head when you're putting him in the squad car, eh, that's fine. that might yeah. not be so bad. Um, because you've got a lot of people in a lot of professions who are working really hard and they're really feeling left behind and they, well, they, and they are being left behind and they're very resentful about it. I was saying to my husband at one point, you know, we, we love to, we're big sports fans and we were watching, um, the, uh, the final four and all the, you know, run up to the final four. And I was saying, Gordon, look at how many of these schools that were historically all white schools. But look at the basketball teams. They're all black kids who probably are there on scholarship because they're good basketball players. I said, and you know what? I bet in blue collar homes, folks are sitting there, dads are sitting there watching this and thinking, my kid can't get a scholarship to this college or my kid could have had that college scholarship. But now for basketball, yeah. but now they're bringing in all the black athletes to be on the teams. I said, so you know, when, when you've got this sort of resentment, which is economically driven, you know, people are very open and welcoming when they're comfortable and they're secure, and and you tighten up, you when, tighten when it up, are and then all of a sudden, you know, the friction starts. Yeah. But um, so one, Trump has given. Uh, his approval, not even just tacitly, he's part of all of this. You know, he has misrepresented the fact that black athletes taking a knee during the national anthem is not disrespecting the flag. The flag is a symbol. The flag means nothing without what it stands for. We could take that flag and rip it up and say, this is our new flag. This is our new symbol. That flag means nothing without what it it stands for. And what we, the African-American community, are trying to say, and and we're not aligned on this. There 
lot of African Americans who think, no, it is disrespectful, or we need to find other ways of protest. We shouldn't be taking a knee, or you know, we shouldn't have been boycotting football as Gordon and I were doing yeah. until Trump said boycott it. Now we're like right, right back on the TV. Um, it's it is saying we can do better. It is saying we're we're not living up to all of our values. We respect our military. My husband served in the military. Um, our military is all fighting so that other countries can do the same thing that we're doing. Yeah. So the, But here's the thing that really, really worries me the most about Trump. Trump is a vindictive man. I truly believe he is clinically a narcissist. I think he is not well. And for every voice that's raised against him, and he said it, you hit me, I hit you back twice as hard. And that's a real, (laughs) what can I say? That is a real infantile, um, um, I I can't even think of the word I want, where it's, I can't think of anything better to do than just hit you back. You hit me, I hit you. But but it's the kind of thing, you know, we're like bullies uh, and people who don't have any other skill set to resolve conflict. That's that's what they do. Yeah. Um, and people who are feeling really frustrated and mad, and it's like, I, wow, that's my reaction. So what Trump has done is he has let no one speak out against him. It could be an international leader. It could be... Someone in his own cabinet. Someone in his own cabinet. Yeah. It could be someone from the Congress. If you aren't loyal to me, if you don't voice... A, a position that is comparable to mine, I'm coming after you. That's what dictators do. And my worry is that I mean, not only is he giving legitimacy to all of these um, ultra right-wing groups and just your middle-class, hard-working, blue-collar, pissed-off Americans. Yeah. So let's say it's not even just the ultra-right-wingers. Yeah. Let's just say it's pissed off people who want to be able to just go out and um, not not voice, but express their anger, do something to show that they're mad. So he's given legitimacy to, to that. But he's also, I think, making some people afraid to speak out against him because they're afraid of the punishment. So I'm looking for folks who are going to be as brave as a Colin Kaepernick who are Caucasian leaders who are going to say, no um, more. "I can't follow this anymore." Sorry, yeah. sorry, Donald. I'm I'm out of here. You know, I cannot condone this anymore. Um, I'm going to also say, since this is a very current event, I truly believe, and I hope to be proven wrong, but I truly believe that the, the difference in the reaction to the hurricane in um, in in Puerto Rico versus Florida and Texas. Mm-hmm has a lot to do with the demographics. And I have noticed that the, that the newscasters and everyone in Puerto Rico, the, the, the leaders talking about this, are so quick to say, these are American citizens. These are American, because I think they want to make everyone understand yeah. Yeah. this is not USAID assistance. This is Americans helping other Americans. So... I think our country is in grave danger, and I'm. Uh, it's a scary time. And I've never felt this scared as I do in my.
country. You know, you you're at our home. You've seen the neighborhood in which we live, which is a great neighborhood and it's a great community. But I know just a couple months ago, my husband and I were coming back from an event and we had left our car parked in another town. And so he dropped me off and we were coming home separately. And I said, well, I'm going to take back roads. And my husband said, I'm going to take the highway because I'm really afraid that if I break down and I have to go on and knock on some random person's door late at night, I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen to me. I'm afraid that they will call the police. And I'll get arrested. And I'll get arrested or I might get killed. Yeah. How scary is that? You know, how, how yeah. scary is that? So, um, you know, it's it, we're living in really tough times right now. I'm sorry. No, about that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I want to thank you for the conversation, having me in your home and being so candid. It's been and, a great um, conversation. Thank you. Yeah. There it is, your first rounders podcast with Susan Wyndham Bannister. Very deep appreciation to Susan for having me into her home, for having us into her home. I brought a photographer there um, for letting me record. So thanks both to Susan and her husband and for having such a candid conversation. Very much appreciate that. I've been doing these for years now, and I think this is the only time. Well, I don't think I know. I know this is the only time I've ever hugged a guest at the end of the recording. So thanks, Susan. Um, what else? Thanks to Johns Hopkins University MBEE program, the Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship. They are the sponsor for this podcast. Um, for more information on their program, go to enterprise.jhu.edu. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet. You know why. They provide the music for this podcast. Go to our blog, Trade Secrets. You can find off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. I will put up more information on Susan Wyndham Bannister. I will put up information, infor, extra information about the article that we published, Biotech's Pale Shadow. If you have comments on this podcast, the article that we wrote on racial disparities in biotech, or anything else that we do, you may find us on Twitter and speak to us there. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. And that is it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.